To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Joining us on the line today is Michelle Fernandez, who's currently a strategic sourcing quality manager in the natural medicine industry. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Biochemistry from the United States and holds a Master's in Human Nutrition with a concentration in Pediatric Nutrition, which she obtained here in Australia. Her current work involves increasing visibility in her company's supply chain to deeply understand where the ingredients are sourced from and more about the ethical practices of those suppliers. We're going to be delving into a very uncomfortable aspect of this today, and this is slavery. And I'd like to warmly welcome Michelle Fernandez to FX Medicine today. How are you, Michelle? I'm wonderful. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. Yeah, look, Thank you for joining us on FX Medicine because when I first heard you speak about this, I thought, no way, this doesn't, this doesn't exist in Australia. I was in tears by the end of your talk. So I think we need to start right back at the beginning. Where has this interest in the human cost of procurement of raw ingredients come from? Look, that's a great question, um, and there probably hasn't been one specific instance that triggered interest throughout the industry, um, but probably more of a series of events. Do you remember, it, was, it happened in Bangladesh back in 2013, do you remember Rana Plaza? It's it, There was a collapse of a building. There was a large building that housed five clothing factories. Um, it was called Rana Plaza, and it caught fire and collapsed. And if you were to YouTube this, you you would end up in tears again. It is such a sad story. 1,100 people lost their oh, lives. Um, 2,500 people were injured. And I think that really opened the world's eyes to the conditions that these people were working in. Um, and it's not, these fires and collapses sadly happen all the time, but the scale of this one was just so large. So that really put it on um, just... It, it opened our eyes and it showed that there's something more that we could be doing in this space. And it also brought up the whole cost of fashion. And we went through this thing and we still actually have it now. And it's the concept of the $4 t-shirt where you walk into a clothing store and you see this t-shirt and it's amazing. It's $4. What a bargain. But I can be, you know, you can be sure that the company selling it to you is making a margin on that $4 t-shirt. Yeah. So the question is, is who's missing out? Mm. Who's losing out there? And that's the term, the term that it's, and it's always been known as modern day slavery, but I think Rana Plaza probably put it on 
on the front. It, it really it turned the lens. We, we always it, think about, you know, economies of scale, if you like, um, mm-hmm. where components or uh, raw materials are procured from another country because it's cheaper to do so. Well, it's cheaper to do so only if they have a cheaper standard of living a lesser standard of living. And it's sort of almost accepted that we, you know, procure raw materials from developing nations because it's cheaper to do so. But mm-hmm. but when you're mentioning the things like the $4 T-shirt, which is ridiculously cheap. It is. You know, then you have to really wonder about who's getting paid along the way. And this is the thing that really worried me. I think the clothing industry got hit first, mm. um, where the horror story is exposed by either, you know, the media or some human rights groups. But the agricultural sector has been hit too. And that's obviously much closer to the natural health industry. You know, the question might be, where do we get our herbs from and our ingredients for our complementary medicines? Who's planting them? Who's harvesting them? And that's really led to the, the space that I'm working in right now around creating visibility in a supply chain so that we know that there's no modern day slavery yeah. happening. And there's there's been government legislation as well. Uh, the UK passed its Modern Day Slavery Act in 2015. Australia just passed ours last year. And this requires that companies of a certain size are going to be showing um, showing what they're doing in this space to create visibility. So it's these government-led programs are great because they start, they give us a reason to start. But the more the real power, I believe lies in the supply chain. Because you can have the government legislation, but the supply chain is the one that makes the decisions, right? We decide who we're going to buy from. So I believe the responsibility lies with the companies. But but it also goes further in there. You were speaking, something which really warmed my heart was that it wasn't just, oh, you are at risk of being involved in child slavery or slavery, and therefore we won't buy from you, see you later, goodbye. Rather than that, it's more, you are at risk, we're going to help you overcome this. That's something that I thought was, it really warmed my heart about that. Tell us more Absolutely. about this. So um, the one thing that I would love to acknowledge is that the company that I work for has made a conscious decision that whenever we did start looking into our supply chain, if we did find something suspect and we investigated it and we had confirmed that it was in fact modern day slavery, we will not run away. That is what we chose. We will not run away because running away does nothing for the person who's trapped no. in modern day slavery. And, you know, that supplier is is producing a product at probably a very attractive and a low price because they're not paying their employees what the, what they deserve. But if we run away, another less educated company who doesn't know as much about this in this space, they're going to come in and say, oh, this is a great price. I'm going to buy from them. Mm. And so even though you've done the work to identify it, you haven't done anything about it. And that's that's where we believe that, that, that actually working with your supplier, building a stronger relationship, showing them there's a better way and lifting their standard, that's that's our job. That's really our job. Do you want me to tell you a little bit about modern day slavery? Do you want me to define it? Yes, I would love to because, you know, the examples you've given so far are in other countries. And so it's very mm. easy to people to turn a blind eye, but it's not so. Exactly. It's, it is. It's. I was so shocked. First of all, can I just tell you, I was so shocked when I first began working in this space because the first time I heard the term modern day slavery, number one, I didn't understand it. Uh, and I, number two, I, I didn't even believe it. It just was so such a foreign concept to me. Mm. But modern day slavery is actually on the rise. So since 2012, 
slave trafficking has increased 47%. Wow. That's, I know, wow. Um, there's a group out of Australia called the Walk Free Foundation, and I really encourage you to check out their website. They've got really good information there. But every year, they publish something called the Global Slavery Index. And in 2018, this index estimated that there are 40.3 million people around the world trapped in some form of modern-day slavery, 40.3 million. And and you have to understand that modern-day slavery takes many different forms. So that number, that 40.3, that includes includes forced marriage, there's forced labor, bonded labor, child slavery, and it is rife in certain sectors. So the natural health industry is, is definitely no exception there. And I think bonded labor and um, forced labor are probably the most applicable to the natural health industry. Yeah. Just, you know, due to our reliance on natural ingredients grown in fields. And, and of course, you do have a high risk of child slavery in the Asia-Pacific region. Let's it, go through a couple of those definitions. So it's like what's yeah, forced labor and what's bonded labor? Okay, so I'll start with bonded labor. Um, so it, I, I say it's a really interesting concept, but interesting isn't the, no. the right word. Yeah, horrible. There, it's horrible. There are, there are groups of people looking to make a profit in slave trade. And what they do is they seek out people who are down on their luck and they make them a promise. So you've got people working in a third world country. They're working seven days a week. Their hours are really long and they're not even making ends meet. So they're down on their luck and, and the slave traffickers will seek those people out and they make them a promise. The promise they make them is that, you know, maybe they're going to smuggle them into a country like Australia. And they say, we're going we're gonna to get you in there, and then your opportunities are going to open up. And you're going to be doing the same similar work, but where you're going to get paid so much more, and I can help you get there. And the, the, bond, the term bonded labor comes in because that person will have to pay money to their trafficker, but they don't pay them right away. The promise is that you can pay me later once, once you're earning money. And that, that's attractive, right? right? If you're down on your luck, you're going to take that opportunity. You're going to see it as an opportunity. Interest-free loan, anyone? It, but that's, basically, I mean, that's, that's what they're offering. That's our equivalent, isn't it? Yes, yes. So let's say that person makes their way to Australia, and and you know, but once they're in there, they don't speak the they don't speak our language. They don't know their working rights. They are most likely underpaid, and and they're in a situation and a cycle that they're not going to be able to break. They're never going to be able to pay pay anybody back and they've lost their identity. So they lose their identity because now they are bonded to their employer and, and they owe them everything. So bonded labor is it's dangerous because it really it it you get caught in this cycle and it it perpetuates. And what if you have a child while you're in bonded bonded labor? That child will very likely end up in child slavery. Right. And because so it of perpetuates. The, it, it perpetuates exactly. Now in the case of forced labor, forced labor is simply where somebody is told, they're usually abducted, and they are then told, this is what you're doing. You are now a slave, and you're not paid. This is your life. And there's there's no way out of that. That's, that's scary as well. Um, but there's so many different forms of modern-day slavery. And, and you know what? I want to make it clear that slavery isn't always a woman and, and a child being abducted from the side of the road. So, so picture this, okay? There's a mother who has to provide for her family. And in order to do that, she is working by picking herbs for a raw material supplier. 
She is, she's paid so little for her hard work that in order to make ends meet, let's say she has to work seven days a week, and then she has a quota to hit to get paid a few extra dollars, and those extra dollars mean something. So to hit that quota, that means she can't take a bathroom break from the fields. She then chooses not to drink water all day. She's out in the hot sun. She chooses not to drink water so she doesn't have to go to the bathroom. So my question is, is that right? Mm, mm. If you if you knew that was happening, would you still buy that product? Well, this really goes back to like basic workers' rights, doesn't it? Exactly. Yes, it does. And and, and it's not just it's all over the world. Everybody deserves human rights should be protected for everybody. Yeah. That's what I believe. Okay, you also said something earlier about it's only companies of a certain size that have to do this reporting. Therefore, That's the right. companies not of a certain size, smaller companies don't. That's true. Yeah, the, the companies under, there are certain thresholds that the Commonwealth has set um, in both the UK and, and the Commonwealth in Australia have set. If you fall underneath that, that threshold of, of annual revenue, then it's voluntary for you to report. So what practitioners might not realise is that, you know, ah, company doesn't grow the herbs. They go to a supplier. And indeed, mm -hmm. very often they go to a supplier within their own company that is, um, has, you know, contacts of the raw, for the raw materials. Um, so there's these number of people along the way. And, you know, it's got to do with procurement, with getting mm -hmm. a product tested, making sure it's of a certain quality, and indeed in finishing the product for, for sale. Maybe it's encapsulation of the fish oil or something yeah, like absolutely. that. So how far does this, this legislation go? I mean, obviously the company that you work for has decided to investigate this down the whole supply chain. That's a lot of work. Oh, it's a ton of work. And, and I think that the important thing to recognize, you really hit the nail on the head, is that that we are all part of this supply chain. So it starts with the growers providing the ingredients, the harvesters, the manufacturers. What about the people that, that drive the trucks to get it to and from where it goes? They're in the supply yeah. chain as well. Yeah. And, you know, the retailers who sell, but the practitioners who recommend are also in the supply chain. So I'm a nutritionist and as a health practitioner, I know I develop really strong connections with my patients and that's powerful. So if I recommend a product to my patient, they're probably going to take it. And if sustainability is important to me, mm. it's going to be important to them because I give them a reason to choose that sustainable approach, you know? Um, I would just say that if my patient doesn't understand what sustainability means, then I feel it's my responsibility to educate them and to give them context just so that they know they can make an educated decision. Yeah, but sustainability encompasses so much more than what I previously thought. This goes into so many areas and this isn't just child slavery, but also, you know, wiping out of cultural mm -hmm. knowledge as well. Um, oh, gosh. This is bigger than Ben-Hur. <laughs> it is. It That's is. So and, and I think sustainability, you, it's been divided into environmental sustainability and ethical sustainability. Ah, right. So, yeah. So, environmental, whenever you're going to, to pick a material, you should be looking that the material you pick doesn't affect the longevity of the stock. It doesn't um, negatively impact biodiversity or use potentially destructive harvesting practices. That's environmental sustainability. But the ethical side is, is does, does that company understand that they have to respect the people who produce the mm, products? Mm. 
you know, and, and that can apply at any stage in the supply chain. So that's something where it, that's so much more about taking care of the people that are getting that product to you. Mm. So we've mentioned, you know, about um, issues in Bangladesh and things like that, but mm-hmm. you were also alluding to, you know, with, with bonded labour, you were alluding to slavery in Australia. So let's let's take a step into there. What happens there? What's the estimated issue of slavery, of bonded labour or forced labour within Australia? Well, it's, this is the thing. So modern-day slavery is an incredibly hidden crime. So the statistics, um, are they use algorithms to come up with these numbers, but it's estimated that there are 15,000 people trapped in modern-day slavery in Australia. But wow. then whenever you look at you look at the data I just told you, 15,000 is too low. Yeah. I know there are more than that, but it's such a hidden crime that there's, we can estimate based on the cases that have been brought forward and, you know, things where, you know, groups have been found out for human trafficking. That's where that 15,000 number comes from. But I can't actually give you true numbers because we don't have We them. don't know them, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But 15,000 so within, within Australia, um, you know, you can guarantee that's going to be bigger in the U.S., Oh, for sure. The, the human trafficking industry profits more than 150 billion, and that's billion with a B, more than 150 billion dollars a year. That's how much they profit on slave labor. Um, can I give you a history lesson? Yeah, please. Um, okay, so I'm I'm American. I don't know if you can tell from my accent. <laughs> and and my country, we've had a, a rather deep and ugly history with slave trade. So Back in the 1850s, if you were a plantation owner in the south of the United States and you wanted to purchase another human life, it would have cost you around $3,900. So if we convert that to today, it's equivalent to $40,000 US dollars. Right. So if somehow today, somehow you got involved in the human trafficking industry, how much do you think a human life costs today? Andrew, how much do you think? Uh, 10000 15000 it, okay, it, it costs, I'm shaking just so you're telling you this, it, it costs $90, 90, 90 what? for uh, to purchase another human life. That's how, that's, I, I want to say that's how available this is. And that's how many people there are out there who are down on their luck and vulnerable. Mm. So whenever I hear this number that there's 15,000 people in Australia, I, I don't believe it. There's more. I believe that there's more. This is $90. In Australia, that's that's yeah around the world. It's ninety ninety dollars to purchase another human life. Whenever you have that person in captivity and you're they're in slavery, you you have to pay for obviously their food and wherever you're going to house them. But it's ninety dollars the transaction. That's what the the slave trafficker asks for. Okay, so, so I, I, I I like I'm going to get a really emotional if I don't go on another tack. So so it, you were talking about the government has introduced legislation. So yes. what does this legislation involve? Is the choice to help other suppliers with their issues of slavery only a choice for your company or is this mandated by the legislation? So the legislation is very 
I want to say it's high level. It, it's very, and this is why I think that the power lies with the supply chain for action. Right. The legislation says, and, and I'm speaking about Australia. The UK is, is, has different thresholds, but for the Commonwealth, if your if your company brings in more than 100 million a year in revenue, you're required to publicly report that you're doing something to create visibility in your supply chain. But there, we're not really guided on what's required for us to do. So each company then needs to make a decision on how far they're going to take this. Doing something um, seems very political in nature, i.e. we're discussing, we're learning, exactly. we're, you know, we're not yeah. doing anything. Exactly. <laughs> right. So it, it starts for me, it starts with, it, first thing you have to do is you got to get your own house in order. So that's what the government's requiring is it's requiring me and my company to get our own house in order. That's governance, that's systems, making sure that if we were to find something, what do we do? Um, how? What kind of questions are we going to ask? And, and just getting that system and a consistent approach in place. But then the other side of that that's so important and arguably more important is building strong relationships. Yeah. So with our suppliers, you can't you can't just the fastest way to burn a bridge is to walk in and ask your supplier if they have slaves. Yeah. Like, that's not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's more about asking them about their, you know, their, their practices, getting to know what they do and having a good relationship with them. And also, whenever we ask these questions, we always, we let them know that it, there's no wrong answer. We just want you to be open and honest and transparent with us. I don't expect any company to come back and say, we're absolutely perfect. In fact, if everybody's absolutely perfect, I'm going to question that. Right. So it's more, I want you to ha have a transparent path forward to addressing the issues. And for, from my experience, from whenever I started working on, on this in this space, companies have never even heard of ethical business practices before. The questions I'm asking about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, they've never even heard of it. So it's just educating them right now to say, this is important to us. I actually care how you treat your employees. Do you have a, a, a social responsibility program? Some companies call it a wellness program. Right. Um, things like that. And if they, say, if they say, no, what is that? I can educate them. How great is it that I'm in a position where they want to know more? Or maybe I'm asking them around, um, tell me how you bring on a new supplier. So we have suppliers, our suppliers have suppliers, and thus that's how the supply chain is created. Gotcha. And honestly, it's a massive spider web. Mm. So whenever we, I have a great relationship with my suppliers, but I need to somehow influence them to have good relationships with their suppliers. And, and that requires me to, sometimes I hold their hand and I help them. But it's a, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm making a difference. You, I remember you said something in your talk about you indeed holding their hand and that yeah. that was something that you promised yourself. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that promise. Where did that start? Oh, I, I think whenever you're working in a space like this, it's you feel good coming to work because you're making a difference. Um, one of our one of our suppliers, they um, we were they're one of our, our you know we have a very strong relationship with them, and we started asking some of these questions. And through the questions that we ask and learning more about how they operate, we we found that some of their workers were were working longer hours than what we felt was was safe or healthy. It was just. It, it made us, we just wanted them to, to review the hours because mm. we felt that they were just weren't safe and they weren't healthy for their people. And that company, they reviewed it within a month, within 30 days, they hired more people 
so that they didn't have, they, they weren't putting the strain. They didn't yeah. even realize it was happening. This is the thing. You know, good companies, they don't necessarily review the hours worked. They're, I, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> But if, if the workers are, are, they seem happy and, and things are going well, you know, you don't always look at that. But sometimes over time, back to back to back, that can be, we feel that can be unhealthy. Right. That's not necessarily safe. So we just had a conversation with the supplier and they said, you know what? You're right. We're going to, we agree with you. And we've, and they, they, we had open communication the whole time. They hired 23 more employees. It was, it's a massive company. They hired 23 more employees to alleviate some of the over, they just, the overtime kept ramping up and they just weren't aware of it. Mm-hmm. It just, it just kept happening. So this is something where when you have a really strong relationship, you can influence change. And that, that's just, you know, one of my, what I consider to be a success story because we, we improved the, the working lives. Like yeah. we, we made, you know, things, they're safer. They are safer, those employees. I want to ask a devil's advocate question, Mm -hmm. and that is, okay, if that person was doing back-to-back overtime, they were doing it so that they could get more money. Mm -hmm. If the company hires more employees, what happens to that person's money, that person's income who was doing back-to-back overtime? Great question. We actually thought of that at the time, and we asked the company to undertake a living wage assessment. So a lot of countries talk about minimum wage, but what we're starting to see now is that minimum wage is sometimes less than a living wage. Yeah. So that's where. So we asked them to undertake a living wage assessment, and these employees were paid. They're paid well. So even with reduction in hours, they are still. X percent, I think it was 42% over living wage. Right. So it was, it was okay. It was more about the health of the health of, of their employees. And you know what? If you're working that much overtime, you're, you're going to be tired. Uh, Things yeah, you're going to get burned out. Danger. There's danger. Yeah. So we did, we, we considered that as well because we were worried that, okay, we're taking these hours off them. And I'm not saying we, cause we didn't do that. That was, we were talking with the company about this. Yeah. Um, but we were, we were suggesting that and they said, you know, well, does that just mean they're going to go pick up another job yeah. so that they can, and then, then that wasn't the case. So that's good. Am I being really insular? I, I was actually thinking about fishing and, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm aware that say Peru, um, yes. has a major fishing industry n- supplying not just fish for, for um, eating for, for their mm-hmm. population, um, which was actually a government uh, mandate, if you like, a government choice, um, you know, use the, the fruits of the sea to, for, yep. to maintain health. But indeed, a byproduct of that is fish oil. Um, so it's a major industry that the government wants to take uh, advantage of, and indeed suppliers want to take advantage of. I had no idea that there may be slavery involved on the fishing boats. I thought they would all be oh, yes. reasonably employed. No, that's the the fisheries are targeted constantly, right? Because it's so easy to hide. Though sometimes those fishing boats can be out for twenty four hours, forty eight yeah. hours. They're out yeah. to sea. It's a hidden. It's a very hidden crime. But because we know that the fisheries are high risk. You can build stronger relationships with those suppliers. There's unannounced audits that you can do. Um, there are things you can do in this space that are starting to look at ethical business practices. And it's it's really in the best interest of Peru to 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 increase their legislation to to require more of these companies because it's such it's such a high risk area. 
but absolutely, the, the fisheries in Peru wow. are targeted constantly. And indeed, yeah. with Peru as well, you know, a modern health notion to have our quinoa, and indeed much of yeah. the quinoa comes from Peru, so you're not just have an environmental issue there because we're taking away their food, um, but indeed for profit margins, they might be involved in slavery as well. They could be. It's, it's everywhere. There's actually um, a website called slaveryfootprint.org that right. you should check out. And it's just a survey. It takes maybe five minutes. Um, but at the end, it'll tell you personally how many slaves are probably in your personal supply chain. And this goes through how many laptops do you have, how many mobile phones. But it's, oh, the numbers are just so, the numbers are really scary. So slaveryfootprint.org is an interesting eye-opener. So with regards to reporting on this, what's mm -hmm. happening with reporting? When does this have to happen? Yep. So I, from the Australia perspective, we have until December 2020, and that's when companies of a certain size need to um, publicly state you know, on a website, and we also have to submit a statement to the commissioner who's who's running this program um, with the government, what we're doing in in this space. So that's around. And also, if you've found anything, what you've done about it. So right now, it's all about building policies within your system, uh, or sorry, building policies within your company and systems in place. Um, so that's happening now with a lot of companies. And the great thing is, is we're all in this together. There is no competitive, like, there's no competition here. Everybody who wants to do better in this space. So even um, you can talk to anybody who you know has a revenue of greater than a, a hundred million a year and say, "What are you doing? What, can we help? Um, can can we can we share some ideas?" And it really is a, a collaborative space because nobody nobody is finding this acceptable. This is unacceptable, and and we have to do better. So if we can share ideas, it's it's great. But what you're what you're mostly going to see is you're you're going to see um, statements going up on websites. And personally, as as a health practitioner that I am, I'm asking anytime somebody comes to me with proposing a new product that they want me to recommend, I ask them about it. I ask them about sustainability. And if they don't understand, I educate them. Yeah. So not just environmental sustainability, but ethical sustainability. Ethical. This is something that really we, we need to expose. Um, we need yeah. to bring this to the attention of all natural health practitioners so that they make yeah. a, not just a wise decision, but the right decision yeah. for, for humans. And, and just understanding that health practitioners are, we are part of the supply chain because we're recommending the product yes. before the person buys it. Mm. So yes, it matters that it's effective, totally matters it's effective, matters that it's of good quality. That still matters, that hasn't changed, but there's this new component that's just as important and that's how was it made. Okay, so you know, a company that has a, a, a large turnover, like you said, a hundred million, um, mm -hmm. you know, for a company that was saying that say has a turnover of, you know, 40 million, way mm -hmm. below that 100 million threshold. Is there anything that you can or are doing to help those smaller companies in realising that there's an issue here, in, in helping them to understand the issues of slavery? Yeah, so the first thing we start by building these strong relationships um, so that we can start to ask questions. And and I think the first thing is, is I would ask if their company, what do they know about sustainability? And then if they don't know anything, I go through environmental and I'll go through ethical, explain it. And and for the most part, if they don't understand, they'll use or sorry, if they don't have anything in place, they'll tell me, let me go back to my to my group, let me talk to them, I'll get back to you. And that's great. I'm gotcha. happy because what I've done is I've planted the seed. Yeah. Now they're thinking about it. Yeah. 
But assuming, assuming they're really proactive and they do know about sustainability, then I start talking to them about, you know, have they done a review to understand the impact of harvesting, let's say it was cranberry or something, let's harvesting or whatever they're proposing. What's, what's the impact that has on the environment? If they are doing risk assessments, that's a good sign. And, and just because they're, you know, 40 million a year companies, that doesn't, they might still be doing risk assessments. It really depends on who they have working for them. Um, so I like to ask suppliers about their social responsibility program. And then I also find out systems they have in place to create visibility in their supply chain. So this helps me understand if they've even thought about protection of human rights. Right. And if they haven't, that's whenever I come in and I offer my help and I say, here are some questions that you can start asking your supply chain. Because for the most part, what I found is that the companies I work with, they do, the suppliers I work with, they do have some kind of a template that they follow whenever they start working with somebody new in their supply chain. Right. And so I then propose, let me add, can I add an ethical section to that, maybe it's an audit you're doing, a desktop questionnaire. Yep. Can I add an ethical section? And not one person has said no to that. Gotcha. Everybody says, yes, yeah. yes, you can. Can you tell me what you want me to ask? Right. Absolutely, I can tell you. Right. I can, I'm happy to help in any way. And going in with, with radiating positivity and kindness in a helpful nature, it, it gets you... It, it, you you can achieve so much by being kind. It just gets you so far. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's really... That's how it starts with me. I will always remember your words about, I don't want to go and browbeat them. I want to hold their hand. Um, yes. Michelle, there's one last question before we go. And that yeah. is with regards to the finished product suppliers in Australia that are supplying yes. the practitioners, um, mm -hmm. is there any um, grouping of them or any association that's, that's saying, hey, guys, we all have this issue, big and small, can we get together and move on this? Is there anybody pulling everybody together? No, there isn't. But if, not that I know of, but if anybody contacts you and says they're interested, I am on board. Wow. The more we can collaborate in this space, the better. Yeah, and absolutely. I wonder I if. I really feel like we're all in this together. I, wonder I really if, do. I wonder if this might be under the auspices of, in Australia, the Complementary Medicines Association. Um, yeah, you know, Council for Responsible Nutrition in the US. Um, somebody yeah, like that. Oh, you're giving me so many good ideas. Maybe we could do that. Goody, coffee. Yes, 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 yes. So <laughs> Ethically produced coffee. No, not that I know of, but yes, let's do it. I'm on board. <laughs> Michelle, I, I have to thank you for opening our eyes today on what is, I mean, it's obviously tragic, but you radiate such positivity in that we can change this and it's not going to break the bank to do so. You do, you know, you do it in such a way that you really care. You care about the person in the field. You care about their outcome, their life, their family. I got to thank you for helping us to understand these real issues facing not just the industry, but the practice of natural medicine. And indeed, yeah. you know, we do this because we care. So we really need to care about the people supplying those medicines for us. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And, and Andrew, there is no time to waste. We are talking about people's lives. So thank you for allowing me to share my passion with your community. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. 
Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.